Well, joyful greetings. Uh, it is a pleasure to be back. I know I taught last week, but you guys get me again. In case you don't know, I am not the pastor of this church. I'm just Patrick Fisher, a healthy church member, and I am not taking over this church. <laughs> Our pastor, Wilson, he's on vacation right now, and so you get me for today. What we're doing today is we're continuing our sermon series called Bible in the Summer, where we are going through the Bible in the summer. And I really love this series. Uh, I mean, it's just been a joy to kind of, as a church, go through these major events. And we're still just at the beginning. We're still at Genesis. So we have a long way to go. But last week, I had the blessing of teaching about Abraham. And as I laid the foundation of how the Bible is not ultimately about us or what we should be doing. Rather, it's about God and what he has done. We looked at the story of Abraham, and we saw how God made a promise with him, how he said to Abraham, his family is going to be a blessed family that's going to outnumber the stars. And we saw God's faithfulness as he fulfilled this promise through his son, Jesus. We saw how Jesus is actually the truer and better Abraham because he not only made a bigger sacrifice, but he brings more people into God's family. For with Abraham, the promise was limited through his blood, his kin, his family, his lineage. But with Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross, the promise, the blessing, the salvation was extended to all who believe in him. Now today, what we're going to do is we're going to learn about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the next generations following Abraham. And their stories take up chapters, uh, 25 chapters in Genesis. So instead of reading all 25 chapters, because I know you guys would love that, instead I'm going to sum up Isaac and Jacob's story in one or two lines. And then we're going to focus on Joseph's story. I'm going to paraphrase his story, which can be found in Genesis chapter 37 to 50, chapter 50. Then I'm going to unpack it. So does it sound good? All right. Thank you. Glad I have your permission and blessing. But before that, I have a discussion question for us. And it is, What's something that had gone wrong or seemed bad in your life, but had actually turned out to be good? Right? What's something that had gone wrong or seemed bad in your life, but had actually turned out to be good? So group up, uh, pairs of two or three. Uh, we want to do this because it's our hope and prayer that you wouldn't just come to church and be entertained by the worship and sermon and leave without talking to anyone but that there would be these opportunities for you to engage with one another, hopefully on a deeper level. So, yeah. If you've got the question, it's on the screen. So, All right. We're going to bring it back. So if you guys didn't get to finish your story, you guys can talk about it after church as we loiter. Maybe some of you shared... Uh, about going to a college that you guys didn't want to go to, or uh, something like that. But um, the reason why I have that question is because in the story that we're going to learn about, Joseph's story, there are a lot of things that go wrong, like really, really wrong 
but we find and we see that everything that went wrong, God intended for good. And so a lot of this paraphrase is inspired by one of my favorite books, the Jesus uh, Storybook Bible. If you don't have it, get it. It's a children's book, but man, it is amazing. And so for Isaac, Isaac was the son of Abraham, and he's famous for going up with his father to the altar to be sacrificed. But God stopped Abraham and provided a ram to die in Isaac's place. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob is famous for wrestling with God. I I love that story because I used to wrestle. And then Jacob, he had 12 sons, but out of all his sons, Joseph was his favorite. One day, Jacob gave Joseph a new robe. It was a beautiful robe with all the colors of the rainbow, but this made his brothers jealous. Then to make matters worse, Joseph had these crazy dreams, dreams that one day his family would bow down to him. You could imagine that this made Joseph's brothers hate him even more. They were even more jealous to the point that they wanted to kill him, and that's exactly what they tried to do. They tore Joseph's robe off of him and sold him to slave traders for 20 pieces of silver. The traders took Joseph to Egypt and made him into a slave. Then the brothers went home and lied to their father, telling him that Joseph, his favorite son, his adored son, was dead. And during all this time, what in the world was God doing? Didn't he care for Joseph's life at all? Well, you see, God had a plan for Joseph's life. And even though it looked like everything was going wrong, God was using it all to make the plan come true. God was using everything that was happening to Joseph to do something good. But at that time, things were not looking good for Joseph. In Egypt, his master, he liked him, but his master's wife really, really liked him. Pretty much she tried to seduce him, but he was like, get off me, woman, and he ran away, right, leaving his clothes behind, so you could imagine that sight. But even though, right, even though he did everything right, even though he fled from temptation like a good man, a good godly man, he still got blamed, He still got punished, and he was thrown in jail for two years. Again, what in the world was God doing? How could he allow that, someone that was a part of God's special family? But one night, the pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had a dream. He had a dream about thin cows gobbling up fat cows. He didn't know what it meant, but he heard that Joseph was a dream expert. So the Pharaoh sent for him, and Joseph explained, famine is coming. There won't be enough food, so we have to prepare. And the Pharaoh was so pleased by this, he immediately took Joseph out of jail and made him prince. Now back home, when the famine came, 
everyone was hungry. God's special family was in danger. And if they didn't get food soon, they were going to starve to death. So Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt because they heard that's where the food is at. So they went there trying to buy food. When they came and knelt before the new prince, it was Joseph. But they didn't recognize him. But Joseph did. Joseph knew who they were. And Joseph's dream, the one about his brothers bowing down to him, was coming true. It's me, Joseph cried. And when they realized that it was Joseph, they were afraid because they had wronged Joseph. They had sinned against him, and they all knew it. Now, Joseph would certainly punish them, right? But Joseph, he looked at his brothers. Tears filled his eyes because even though his brothers had hurt him, even though they had hated him, even though they wanted him dead, in spite of everything, he couldn't stop loving them. His heart, which they had broken, filled with love, and Joseph forgave them. Joseph threw his arms and said to them, don't be afraid. Behind what you're doing, underneath all of that, God was doing something good. God was making everything right again. So Joseph, he didn't punish his brothers. He didn't punish his family. He rescued them. He brought God's special family to live safely with him in Egypt. And so this story, this is the story of Joseph. And it's significant in history or rather, it's significant in his story because God promised Abraham that his family, right, would be this special blessed nation, that all the other people outside of Abraham's family would look and see them as an example of how, much, how awesome it is, how much better it is to be cared for by God, to be set apart and holy. But four generations in, what do we get? we get a highly messy, dysfunctional family. <laughs> Jacob, right, is a man who cheated on his brother, cheated his brother and stole his blessing. And he had two rivaling wives, children with both of them. He had unhealthy favoritism, which caused his sons to be filled with their hearts to be filled with hate to the point where they weren't just fantasizing about killing their sibling like many of you might do, but they were actually going to do it. But instead, they just sold them as a slave. And so this, this was God's great nation blessed by him. And honestly, it looks less like a powerful nation and more like a joke. It looks like some messed up, family sitcom. But if you look at this, if you look at this family, this is so God, right? God's family, since the very beginning, has always, always been a place for imperfect people. Because God chooses us, chooses his family members, 
not because of us, but despite us. His goodness, his beauty, his truth shines in our dysfunction, in our messiness. And we see that because in Joseph's story, it becomes a real turning point. Him and his, him and his brothers make up the 12, become the 12 tribes of Israel. But it was Joseph's favor with the Pharaoh, the high position that he earned, that helped his people not only survive a famine, but to flourish in the land. Because Egypt was a hub, was a place of great power and influence. And so his, his family was able to go from 70 men to 603,000 men. Now this was looking more like a nation. God's promise was being fulfilled. But all of this happened because of the up and down, crazy roller coaster life of Joseph. And so at this point, most sermons, again, would end here with application or a moral lesson, and there's plenty of that to draw from that, from Joseph's story. We could talk about how we should be, all be more like Joseph, how we should continue to do good even when wrong or bad things happen, how we should run from sexual temptation like Potiphar's wife, how we should trust in God's plan because he works in mysterious ways, or how we should forgive those who wrong us like Joseph did to his brothers. And all of this, all this, they're not bad or they're not wrong applications or morals. But again, if we end here, we miss the point. That's not the point of the Bible, and that's not the point of this series, Bible in the Summer. Just like last week, I want to, or rather, I need to ask the question for us, What do we learn about God? What does this story show us more about him? And so I want to highlight two things. The first is that God is sovereign. What does this mean? It means that God is in complete control of everything. All right, so I want you guys to respond with that, right? What does it mean for God to be sovereign? God is in complete control of everything. You guys get a B plus. Genesis 45, verses uh, 3 to 8. I'm going to skip that one. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. Is Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God 
sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me the father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. It's clear that Joseph's story, Joseph's story has its ups and downs. A lot of things go wrong for him. And if God were not sovereign, then Joseph would have every reason to be afraid and worry. If God were not in complete control of everything, he could not guarantee any of the promises he makes. It, yet we see, we see that God is sovereign. We see that he's using everything in Joseph's life, even the things that man intended for evil, God intended for good. And understand, right, that Joseph's story was, wasn't just a year story, right, where he, a year passed of all this misfortune and bad events, and then he got to see what God was doing. Then he got to see God's sovereignty. But rather, this span, this story took 13 years. And surely, if we only saw Joseph's story, if we only saw him at his lows, we would question God just as many of us do in our own lives. But we have to understand that our scope is so small. Our understanding of even our own lives is so limited. But God, he shows his control. He shows his bigness that nothing will stop him from caring for his family, for his people, and fulfilling his word. There's so many examples to choose from, especially in the Bible. I mean, I, I think about the example of Paul, right? How he, and I know we're skipping like thousands of years going into the series, the Bible, but if we look just time, time leap, right? We look at Paul, and, and we see how he was Satan, one of Satan's best weapons to kill off the Christians and put a stop to the early church. But what does God do? He reveals himself to Paul. He sovereignly changes his heart. And, he, and Paul changes from an instrument of darkness and death. And he, he's turned into this ambassador of light and life. And not only that, even with the Christians that Paul was able to persecute before he had God's intervention, the church that he persecuted, it only helped serve, spread Christianity, spread the truth globally, and plant more churches. Imagine how frustrating it must be to be on Satan's side, to be dealing, to be warring against a sovereign God who will not lose, whose victory is assured. The story can't be changed. There's no, oh, maybe Satan has a trump card and he'll persevere, right? No, God will win. God's people will see God's promises to the end. And it's not just in the Bible that I see this. It's, it's even in my own life personally. 
I've seen God's sovereignty even in dark events. For me, it was before I was born, my father divorced my mom. And this, this is a bad event, right? This is not a good thing. A child, a son, needs his father growing up. He needs an example set before him of what a man should look like. And even though this was a tragic event, I could see God's sovereignty because I knew the man that my, 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 my father was. And even though there's lots of things that I respect about him, he wasn't a godly man. He wasn't a man that I would want to imitate. Instead, because of his absence, God was able to provide my mentors in life, right? These godly men that taught me how to wrestle, taught me how to drive, taught me how to ask good questions and serve others and treat women and read the Bible. He, he, he put these godly men in my life to show me this is what a real man looks like. And, I'm, and part of the, and the huge reason why I'm here today, why I'm the man of God that I am here today, is because God filled my life with these men. He worked sovereignly in my life. I, I wouldn't be here if God didn't work that way. And on and on I could go from struggles to just anything and everything, right? The big things, the small things. And I, I pray that you, that you may not be able to see it. You may not be able to see God's sovereignty, how he's working all things for our good and for his glory. But I pray that you would be able to trust it. That you'd be able to trust who God is. He is sovereign. Nothing will stop him. And so that's the first thing we learn. The second thing is how Jesus is the truer and better Joseph. Jesus is the truer and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. In Romans 8, chapter 33 to 34, it says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. God sent Jesus, whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His own people would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished, even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to Jesus, even the bad things, to do something good to forgive the sins of the world. So the question to think about is, okay, if I'm not Joseph in the story, if Jesus is Joseph, then who are we? Where do we fit in? 
Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. Let's read that and see who, who are we in the story. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So who are we in this story? I hope it's obvious. We are the brothers. We are the ones that sinned against God. We are the ones that, that harmed him and deserve to be punished. Yet, we are shown forgiveness. Yet, we are saved, just like the brothers. And you know, many of you struggle to believe that God loves you. Many of you struggle to accept that he has truly forgiven you and you come to Christ afraid, saying like Joseph's brothers, or in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, we'll be your slaves. We'll work for it. Please don't punish us. Please don't forsake us. We'll do. We'll work. But I implore you, I, I, I plead with you, please, please don't look towards you. Don't look towards your circumstances to determine God's love for you. Instead, look at the cross. Because, look, it's the ultimate affirmation that God loves you. And if it's, it's founded in anything else, if your love, for, if, if your understanding of God's love is based ultimately on anything else, then I pray, whether it be your performance or whether things are going the way you want it to, I pray that that would reveal your idols. The cross of Christ is all the evidence we need to know that he loves us. And so I want to end with this quote. It's from a book that my wife is currently reading called God Smuggler by Brother Andrew. And she actually blogged about it yesterday. And so when I was reading her blog, I just thought it just went so well with the message. So I had to include it. And it goes, if I were to give my life as a servant of the king, I had to know that king. What was he like? In what way could I trust him? In the same way I trust a set of impersonal laws? Or could I trust him as a living leader, 
as a very present commander in battle, this very question was central because if he were a king in name only, I would rather go back to the chocolate factory. I would remain a Christian, but I would know that my religion was only a set of principles, excellent to be followed, but hardly demanding devotion. I love this quote because it fits with my prayer for our church, especially as we learn the Bible together, that we wouldn't just learn the story, take notes, sing, loiter, and then leave, but that we would come to know God, that we would truly know him more and more, that we would know him better than we know our significant others or any other close relationships, that the Bible wouldn't just be a set of rules to us, but it would be a story where we intimately know him, where we see more of him because we have to know more of him. We want to know more of him. If we're going to devote our lives to calling people to him, then we better know exactly who we're calling them to. That's my prayer. And I hope that's your prayer as well, that we would know God more through this story instead of just seeing it as a moral or about us, but that we would see Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that not just on Sundays, but every day of our life, you would help us to see what the Bible and even our own lives are are all about. That they're not about me and my way and my desires and my plan, but it's about you. You are God. You are infinite. You are big and sovereign. You are truth and beauty and righteousness and goodness. And so who are we to proclaim ourselves the center of the universe? Who are we to say that you should be like this or that things should be done this way? God, help us. Help us to see life clearly. Help us not to drown in all the lies the world feeds us. Help us to breathe in truth that you are God. And just like in the story of Joseph, just like in the story of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, you care for your people and nothing will stop you. Oh, how you love us how you've forgiven us despite all our sins. May we bask in your love and may that transform us. Rules, religion, they won't change our hearts, but your love will. Oh, how you love us. Even when everything goes wrong, 
you love us. And for that, we have joy. So it's in your sweet, sweet Jesus' name we pray. Amen.